This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Adam Thompson, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Adam is an Aboriginal Pakana writer from Launceston, Tasmania. He has won several local writing awards and has been published by the Australian Dictionary of Biography, Kill Your Darlings and Griffith Review. Adam is passionate about his community and has worked for the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre for almost 20 years, caring for Aboriginal land and heritage and preserving community history. In addition to short fiction, Adam has written for television and performance art. His debut is this book that we're talking about today, Born Into This, an engaging, thought-provoking collection of short stories that addresses universal themes, identity, racism, heritage destruction from a wholly original perspective. Congratulations. There's a lot of love for this book in our office. Yeah, thanks, Cheryl. I appreciate that. It's, um, it's only been out now for a bit over a month and, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of good feedback on it. It's been really yeah. cool. Firstly, tell me a little bit about the book and then I want to talk about how you came to writing. Yeah, okay. So it's my debut book. It's a collection of short stories, all fiction. There's 16 stories and uh, it's all set in Tasmania. I guess you could say it's Aboriginal themed and uh, yeah, it's contemporary. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Okay, so tell me about you. Tell me about where you grew up. So you've been in Launceston? Me, yeah. Um, I was actually born in Western Australia. Ah. Uh, My mum met my dad in WA my mum was from Launceston, my father was from Hobart. They they met in Perth and had me and separated soon after and I um I came back here when I was a couple of months old and yeah, Launceston's been my hometown all my life pretty much. Mm. I've lived elsewhere, um, Queensland for a couple of years and the Northern Territory for a few years, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'll always uh, call Launceston my home my mm. hometown. Mm. So talk to me about, um, were you, how did the the idea of storytelling come to you? Did it come at a very young age? Were you kind of the kid that was always off in dreamland thinking about stories? (laughs) Well, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, yes and no. I've always been a pretty kind of dreamy sort of person, always daydreaming and thinking about things. Always had an interest in stories. I read a lot when I was a child. And I guess my whole life has led up to this point now where I'm, I'm writing and telling these stories. Some people have been kind of surprised. Some people in my life are going kind to of surprise that I've, I've started writing now um, and never considered me a, to be a writer before. But it just felt like the right time to, to start telling these stories now. So writing, well, I guess telling stories isn't always about putting pen to paper, is it? Because I guess if we look at lots of Indigenous communities and, you know, even communities in Asia and Africa as well, I've spoken to some African writers, where storytelling is very oral, isn't it? 
it doesn't mean that it's actually writing a story. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always loved telling stories. I never considered it storytelling. I just thought it was what everyone did. And I've always loved listening to people talk. Um, you know, even if they're, you know, my cousins and that describing some film they'd seen and, uh, and try and draw out the detail. Um, that's just that's just who I am, you know. And, you know, the last 10 years or so, I've been around quite a few people who are storytellers, you know, playwrights and, and, and authors, and um, I've just really been inspired by them and, and uh, interested in, in actually getting my own stuff together and being serious about getting my stories out to the world. Mm. I'm a bit of a storyteller myself. I'm not a writer at all, so I've never put pen to paper in that way, but I love to tell stories. And there is a real art to telling a story, like say at a dinner table or, because some people just never get the pitch right. Do you notice that? Like they're telling you, thinking, oh, where are you going with that? And then other people have a real knack of even the littlest, tiniest stories of making them so entertaining. Absolutely. I know exactly what you mean. It's the same with telling a joke. You know, some people can tell it well and some people, uh, you know, you, you kind of lose it a little bit. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're telling a story and you, you're looking at, you know, into the eyes of the people around you, you can kind of see if they're engaged. And if, you, if you're adding too much detail or if you, you've missed something, you can see their eyes start to glaze over a little bit and they might start to fiddle and you kind of lost them, but you, you can get them back, but it's kind of over. It's kind of giving you the opportunity to actually observe your audience, which you can't do when you've written a book, can you? Exactly. And I think, you know, when you're, when you're writing a book or writing a story, you've kind of got to be conscious of not waffling on a little bit. I guess you have to imagine the reader sitting there and looking at you in the eyes and, uh, and, and you've got to try and keep their attention. So tell me about your career. Tell me about your life experience and what, what brought you to here. So you left school. Yeah, yeah. Were okay. you a good kid at school? I've always been described ever since I was a kid as someone who has potential if I ever applied myself. <laughs> I <know>. love it. <laughs> Welcome to my world, Adam. <laughs> That's what all of my school reports said. And uh, if you asked any of the bosses I've ever had in my life, they'd say the same. You know, and so I, I left school, I went to, I went to college and, and I started university, but I just had kind of got sick of school. I was more interested in partying and girls and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think I was about 19 and I um, decided I'd, I'd move to Queensland to kind of get to know my dad, who I didn't grow up with. And I did that and I just, I guess in that two years I was away in Queensland, I just started working and uh, became a little bit more sensible. What were you working as? I worked um, for Queensland Rail, um, just re-railing track between Mount Isa and uh, well, wherever we were working, you know, it was uh, right out in the desert, you know. Mm, hard um, labour. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was an interesting introduction to working, but it, it was good. I met heaps of really cool people and, yeah, and then after that I moved back to Tasmania and, and then I started working at the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. Just, you know, I, I started working here um, cleaning cars and just, you know, just doing kind of odd jobs. And then I got a bit of work over on the islands. And then over the next probably eight years, I was pretty much working on the islands all the time. And uh, I was a ranger over there. Started just doing a bit of building and that with a builder. And then, and then I started working as a ranger. Um, so looking after Aboriginal land, doing a lot of environmental rehabilitation work, recording and preserving you know, Aboriginal heritage places, you know, old mutton bird sheds and the old foundations of the of the houses where, you know, my family used to live, you know, my 
great-great-grandparents and people like that, on some of the islands of uh, the northeast of Tasmania in the Ferno group. Yeah, and then, I, and then I left that job after, you know, about eight years and uh, just had a bit of a working holiday around Australia. And then I came back to Tassie and eventually came back to work at the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre in a different role. And I started doing oral histories and kind of recording and preserving those stories of our elders and people in our communities, you know, um, of them growing up and going mutton birding and just living life and all that kind of stuff. What's mutton birding? Mutton birding is an Aboriginal cultural practice, pretty unique to down here. The mutton birds are a seabird. They come back and uh, roost in the in the islands uh, in Bass Strait. There's some small mutton bird habitat uh, areas around the coast of Tasmania, but most of the of what we call the rookeries or the mutton bird habitats are on the the islands in Bass Strait and and some off the northwest as well. And it's an, a, a very old practice that our you know that our old tribal people did. Uh, and then in the days of just following the invasion of Tasmania, the, the sealers uh, took up mutton birding after, after the, the sealing kind of died out and the Aboriginal women kind of, you know, helping them, kind of working as their slaves a lot. And that's just a, you know, a, a practice that stayed in our community since then. And, you know, uh, when it come, come end of March, you know, many people in the community go over to the islands and, and get ready for the mutton bird season. And it pretty much goes through from the end of March all through April, kind of to the beginning of May when the, when the, when the chicks fly off. So it's the mutton bird chicks that we harvest and they're in burrows in the ground. So we kind of crawl around on our hands and knees and pull them out and kill them and then we process them. It's a commercial activity. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a cultural activity, but we sell the mutton birds now. But look, it's just a really interesting, very old tradition. And it's, uh, yeah, we really look forward to doing it and it's coming up very soon. Mm. Look, that brings me on to heritage and talking about heritage. I'm Lebanese-Australian and uh, I identify, even though I was born here, I identify with being more Lebanese than I do Australian, right? And people often perplexed and confused by that. And In my research into talking with you today, it got me thinking about identity, obviously, because you write about that too. And I wonder whether the reason why I identify with being Lebanese more than I do Australian is because we as humans need to have some kind of heritage link, like we need to have a past that we know about. And I feel as though historically for me, Lebanese people have a past but sometimes I think white Australians, we don't talk about that. Like it's not, it doesn't make up who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for a Lebanese person, but certainly, you know, my Aboriginal heritage is a very, very interesting and honourable part of me. And uh, I identify as being an Aboriginal person. And, you know, it does. It has, a, you know, we've got a very interesting history, sad in ways, but, you know, we're the ancient people and we've got a a very unique cultural landscape in Tasmania and um, you know there's a struggle you know where it's a battle trying to protect our heritage trying to protect the authenticity of our of our community you know back in the in the in the 70s you know people were marching the streets for land rights and really for recognition Truganini was known as the last Tasmanian in in the media and uh 
was taught in schools. And so, you know, there's these kind of dark people marching the streets. Who were they? And so, you know, really marching for identity. And then now we've kind of got a bit of a reverse situation where we have non-Aboriginal people claiming to be Aboriginal. So it's, it's a kind of strange situation and uh, it's causing a lot of upset here, as it probably is, you know, all over, all over Australia. So, yeah, you, you know, when you're reading Born Into This and the stories, there's a, a fair bit of stuff in there about identity. Mm. No, there is, absolutely. Talk to me about racism. Racism. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, I'm sure lots of people can identify with racism. Oh, I can, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty big thing in the media and stuff happening in football and, and that. But, you know, and, and it features in, in the book a few times. I, I think, you know, often it's more about casual racism in my book, I think, mm. probably because that's really more what I've experienced. And it's certainly more prevalent, I think. You know, people you know think they kind of have a, mm. a right to, you know, stir you up and, and, and say things to you because, you know, it's kind of in fun or in jest. But it does have effects and, uh, and, and that's what I've kind of mainly kind of targeted and in, in born into this, that, that casual racism. Mm. But it's certainly, a, you know, an insidious thing in Australia and, and all over the world. And, uh, yeah. Do you know what I, and, and you can correct me and everybody's version is their own, I think, but I think sometimes with racism, it's the constant, for me, it's the constant feeling that I have of trying to prove myself or be heard or be treated like somebody else and or be treated equally. And it's kind of sometimes can be all-consuming. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, not so much that it's all-consuming, I, I don't think. I guess I've learned to deal with it and um, treat it with, the, with what it deserves, which is, which is nothing. I mean, I try and put it out of my mind. I think it, racism really is the, the problem of the person who is being racist. They're the one with the issue. I, I don't want to take that on to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone has a problem, if they're racist, that, that's their problem and I'm not going to make it mine. I like that. I like that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Talking about heritage and heritage destruction and how important our heritage is. I mean, I guess that leads back to what we were talking about earlier and where we come from. And I think sometimes too, I think that, you know, because there's been so much unhappiness and unsettlement in the world and particularly coming off the back of the UK and the US and and sometimes I wonder, is it about heritage? Is it about the loss of where we come from? I think so. I mean, down here, and I'm sure, again, it's probably the same with all over the world, you know, you have a culture 
you have the, the remnants or, or whatever's left of the people in your past, your ancestors and that sort of thing. Uh, some of that is in the form of, of stories and traditions and that sort of thing. And, and some of it is kind of what's left in the landscape, you know. Mm. And, and down here, you know, we've got this beautiful physical heritage in the, in the landscape in the form of these beautiful middens and, you know, places with stone tools and old mutton bird sheds and the foundations of, you know, the old people, um, burial places, you know, this really important stuff that, you know, we, we need to have there so that we can take young people so that they can, you know, they can learn about this stuff and see what separates them from the rest of Australia, what makes them unique as Palawar or Pakana people. So that, that, that's so important that it's there and preserved for that reason. And you've got all these forces kind of acting on that. Like, you know, down here you've got, you know, forestry operations and, and farming, mining and, and infrastructure development and tourism, all of these things impacting our physical heritage places. And it's just, it's just a, such a battle. You know, constantly fighting against, you know, the state government or developers, you know, constantly trying to justify why these places should, should be protected. You know, it's just so disheartening to see, you know, this happening here. And uh, I mean, it happens all over Australia, all over the world. And so, you know, our physical heritage is something that we need to hold on to and, and use to, you know, especially to teach our younger generations. And it's disappearing. Mm. Okay, I want to go back and, and, and finish off with writing. So at what point did you decide, that's it, I'm going to put pen to paper and write these stories? And how was the experience for you? Well, it was going back to mutton birding. So, you know, I'm, I'm over in the mutton bird islands and I'm sitting around with, my, with the people I go birding with and we're there telling stories and, and having a laugh and being stupid. And, and, you know, one of my mutton birding cohorts by the name of Nathan Maynard, he, he, he went off the islands and then he started to write a play because he's been into theatre and done a bit of acting stuff. So he started writing a play about mutton birding and, and I, at first I thought, oh, you know, he's just, it's just a, a phase. Now he's like, you know, he's a playwright with, with, with many plays, you know, kicking all these goals and kind of made me feel a bit left behind. You know, we're here talking about story, telling yarns, and then he goes off and does something like that. And so that is really what inspired me to put pen to paper and tell my stories. So I was, you know, sitting here in this bubble of, of inspiration and then this short story competition kind of popped up at the Tamer Valley Writers Festival and I think it was about 2016 and there was a prize money and I thought oh this is all right you know we can enter this and if I win there's a prize and it's kind of and it just got me writing you know it got me um putting those those stories in my head and onto the computer and so I wrote this story and uh, sent it off and it did okay in the competition and it was after that that I just had my mind made up I'm going to keep doing this and you know, there was other opportunities that just led from that and then to the next one. And then, you know, it led to the, you know, I submitted some work to the next chapter uh, initiative, the inaugural one through the Wheeler Centre. You know, I didn't think I'd, I'd ever have a chance, but I, I don't even know why I sent it in. But, you know, I did. I was one of the ten. It just went from there. You've got a really nice style. You've got kind of a natural flair. It's like um, when I'm reading it, it's like you're telling me the story, like we're sitting here and you're actually reading it to me or telling it to me out loud. I think that that's how it reads. It's beautiful. Yeah, cool. I mean, that's probably because, 
you know, I don't have a background in creative writing at all. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you that. Have you ever done a formal course? No. Since I've been writing, I, I did a very short course in writing through the Australian Writers' Centre. It was a very short one. I, I, I can't remember the name of it. So I guess I started with, um, you know, these stories and coming from a position of being a storyteller. And then I've picked up the craft of writing as, as I've gone. And so it's been a big learning curve for me. Mm. Um, and how did you get published? Yeah, so, you know, after, after the kind of the year finished, we had a year to kind of polish up our manuscripts through the, the next chapter scheme. And at the end of that year, we all went to Melbourne and, uh, and, the, and, and the Wheeler Centre had arranged for all these publishers to, to come in and, I guess, pitch to us why we should consider them as publishers and what they're looking for. Yeah, and so, you know, Aviva Tuffield was there from UQP. She's wonderful. Yeah, and my mentor through through the next chapter was Kate Kennedy. Yeah. And Kate had told me about Aviva and they'd been speaking about me and uh, and Aviva was really keen to read my work and I, and I was really keen to kind of go with UQP because some of my idols had been published by them and, you know, if you've got my book, you can see the, the wonderful endorsements there from from Ellen Van Neven and, and Melissa Lukashenko and Tony Birch and Tara June Winch, you know, like, you know, it's great. Um, <laughs> it is great. <laughs> so I kind of like the idea of, you know, standing on their shoulders in a way or, or following in their footsteps, if you like. So, you know, to go with UQP really appealed to me. And I sent Viva my work and it was over the Christmas break and she read it and got back to me and said that, you know, she'll take it to her team and they offered me a deal and went from there. So what did you say to your playwright friend? <laughs> <laughs> well, Nathan, you know, I kind of send, send him a story or two and, and he, he, he loves the craft of writing and, I, and he likes my work. Uh, yeah, and, I mean, I certainly don't compare myself to Nathan. Uh, it's a very different type of writing and, mm. you know, he's been in the game longer than I have and, he, and he's just an amazing writer. Hey, um, you know um, Trent Dalton? The writer. Not, not personally. But yeah, I, but you I, know of yeah, him, yeah. yeah. So when I first interviewed him, this was a few years ago, he wouldn't call himself an author because he thought that was an accolade that was too big for him, you know, that he wasn't deserving of that. But when I spoke to him recently about his second book, he's finally embraced the word and a description of him. So where do you, how do you feel about being called an author? Well, I'm kind of happy to be called an author now that I've, you know, got a book published, but I still feel like a massive imposter. Uh, and you know, don't we all, Adam? Don't uh, we all? You know, one of the best things I did was go to the Varuna Writers Centre. Yes. I've been there a couple of times now, and you know, when I went there, I, it was a couple of years ago, and I, I was still working on the manuscript for Born Into This. I was around all these other more established writers. I was the kind of newbie, and you know, and I, I was a bit intimidated. But then when we sat around of an evening drinking wine and talking about books, I discovered that you know, all my problems that they've got probably even worse. You know, <laughs> doesn't matter how many books you've got published, I don't think imposter syndrome kind of leaves you. Oh, I, um, I think it sits with you forever. I've spoken, oh, to over, you know, I've said this many times on the podcast, I've spoken to over 400 authors and I think every single one of them feels like an imposter. And I'll, also I'll tell you this, and I don't know if this, this is bad news or good news, <laughs> but I've spoken to authors that, you know, they're up to their 30th book and they still say to me that every time they sit down to start a new book, it's as hard as the first. Yeah, well, I'm just, you know, writing a novel now and I'm not that far into it. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel the same. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't come easily. I, I always think of other writers as just being able to just 
spew out this gold, you know, and uh, no, nah, not me. Um, no. I, but I think that's probably similar for other people, you know. It doesn't oh, I think- always come easy. I think that is normal, actually. I think that that I have never spoken to a writer where it's oh, simple. I just sit down; it just all comes. I mean, that just has never been said to me. I think some of the hardest part of it for me is, you know, just having the time to kind of sit at the computer and the headspace to to just sit and write and mm. put all that fear and and everything behind you. Um, some people might be able to deal with it a bit better. I mean, I've got a day job, a family. You know, and sometimes I get home from work and I just want to chill out, you know. Just, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is sit at another computer. But, uh, yeah, you know, but there's always, the, you know, in my head it's always a story going on. I'm always formulating something. So if I'm not physically writing, you know, I'm, I'm writing in my head and, and when I do sit down to write, that stuff all comes out. Well, Adam, keep writing. We want you to keep writing for sure. Um, Adam Thompson, thank you so much for your time today. No, thank you. I've really enjoyed this and uh, I hope the uh, audience uh, get something out of it too. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365 day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.